Peril in Mechanistria, from Doctor Who Annual, 1966. Wearily, Doctor Who drove home the last switch, and the TARDIS smoothly materialized into a new environment. At least, he thought grimly to himself, the space-time vehicle was not damaged in any vital part of the infinitely delicate electronic frame which had carried him through so many millions of miles and millions of years. The escape from the ravaging Daleks on their home planet of Skaro had been so abrupt that he had found later that the space-time locator mechanism, though not damaged beyond repair, had suffered so much vibration that he could no longer plot any known course through the multi-dimension of space and time. In other words, amidst the host of incredible and delicate devices in the TARDIS, no longer could he be sure where, or when, she had landed. He sat for a while getting back his strength, aware of a great relief from the incessant vibration of the space-time ship in its headlong travel through the dimensions. In his long and far wanderings, he knew it would be quite impossible to estimate the enormous distances he'd covered, and the incredible stretches of time through which the TARDIS had flitted like a ghost, materialising here and there only to plunge him into ever more and more weird and terrifying adventures. Somewhere in the controls there was an automatic log, on the tapes of which all his wanderings would be recorded. Somehow, He'd never yet felt the urge to examine the log. What was done was done, he thought. Then a grim smile touched his lips. That was no longer true, was it? He'd travelled to the far distant future and to the far distant past. He himself, his own body and his marvellous vehicle had existed in many places in the universe long before his own time when the vehicle had been built and again, long millions of years after she would have ceased to exist in her own space and time. He'd never attempted to solve the paradoxes of the TARDIS. It was just not possible. Rested now, he rose and snapped on the switches of the screens. At least he would see where he was, even if vision from inside would give no clue to the time element. The screens dissolved into the walls of oscillations, and then the picture grew. Or at least, the picture should have grown and steadied, but now it did not. He was busy at the controls for a while, and still, the screen showed nothing but the featureless blackness into which he was gazing. A new wave of weariness swept over him, and he snapped off the switches. The problem was too much for him now. He would eat and sleep again before attempting the solution. Satisfying himself that the TARDIS was actually resting on solid substance, he went round the circular control panels switching off all the machines, except those which gave him air and food and water. After a meal and a sleep, he would feel better able to face whatever perils and uncertainties this new and unknown sphere would present. When he woke up and switched on the screens again, the solution came to him at once, and he laughed to himself. As simple as that. He had landed during the night of this world, and now it was daytime. Certainly it was daytime outside. A pale yellow sun was rising over towards the horizon in the starboard screen. 
Gradually, as he watched, it began to light up the landscape in the view of the outer lenses. It was an odd landscape, but Doctor Who was used to oddness. It seemed that, anywhere and any when he went in the universe, everything was strange and different to every other place and time. Quite featureless it looked. There were no trees. In fact, there seemed to be no vegetation visible anywhere he looked. The ground looked black, and there was a slight shimmering from its smooth surface. His hand went to the controls of the door. The screens told him so little that he knew he must now face the always chancy opening of the great door. The first thing that hit him as the door swung open was the noise. Like a great wave, it fell upon his eardrums and battered into his consciousness. It was not exceptionally loud and seemed to resolve itself into a more or less steady hum. There was a beat in it also, a steady crunching beat that rose and fell and rose and fell again and again. He walked to the doors and looked out. The surface rang to his feet as he walked out of the TARDIS metal. The ground was smooth, featureless metal that was fundamentally black, but which gave out that faint shimmering that was almost, but not quite, a glowing. He moved forward a few feet and turned back to look at his ship. Then he stood stock still as the enormity of the thing overwhelmed him. The TARDIS was nestling against the side of what looked like a gigantic metal mountain. The port screen had been so close to its upward sloping surface that it would have given no view even if he had looked at it. The metal mountain sloped upward and upward so that he found himself leaning backwards to see its summit. Thus he had no warning of the sudden peril that was upon him. A thunderous beat and a great clanking of metal was his first evidence and he whirled round swiftly. Across the metal plain there was approaching him something out of a nightmare, something of which there had been no parallel in all his space-time wanderings. It was round, and it was black. It had wheels, and it had legs. There were portholes in the thing, and from within, lights flashed on and off. It was coming towards him, but he could never be certain afterwards whether it came on the wheels or on the legs. He stood rooted to the spot and watched it approach, like a hypnotised rabbit watches the approach of the cobra. For a moment, he considered retreat to the TARDIS, but knew that he would never make it. He had come too far, and the smooth metal surface on which he stood would make very poor running ground. He had no weapon, and, indeed, what weapon could be of any use against this thing, this monster, this creature, if it was a creature? It was almost upon him now, and already he could see long, jointed metal cables or tentacles emerging to grab him, surely. This thing must be a monstrous robot, a gigantic grappling machine, alongside of which the dreaded Daleks would seem like children's toys. This time, it seemed, his wanderings were at last to end. There could be no salvation from this thing. It would crush him like a fly. It would smear him lifeless on the metal ground of this weird world. At first, he thought that the thing which coiled round his waist was one of the tentacles of the monster whipping out towards him. 
Then his feet left the ground and he was whirled up, up, up into the sky in a sickening curve that left him far above the TARDIS, the metal monster and the metal plane. The breath was knocked out of his body and the last thing he was conscious of before blackness swept over him was the all-pervading smell of oil and the smallness of the erstwhile titanic machine down there. The TARDIS itself was so small that it could no longer be seen at all. He awoke to darkness and glimmering firelight. He awoke to a ring of pale faces, some bearded and some clean-shaven, some men and some women. The relief was so great that he gave a great gasp of content. There were people on this weird planet, actual living people like himself. These would be the masters of the machines of this world. The monster which had attacked him must have broken down and run amok, and he'd been rescued. He sat up and smiled round at his rescuers. Oh, you came in the nick of time, he said. I had given myself up for lost, you know. That frightful thing out there, what is it? Some sort of agricultural machine, no doubt. Highly dangerous, I should say. You should keep such monsters in better control, you know. He screwed his monocle into his eye and beamed round at them benevolently. There was no immediate reply from the ring of faces. They stared at him as though it was he who was the monster. Then one of them spoke, and the voice was so loud that Doctor Who flinched. The one who spoke was a bearded man who looked about his own age, one of the elders, no doubt, thought Doctor Who to himself. But what a scruffy lot they looked, these people he was assuming were the masters of this planet and its weird machines. Who are you? came the deep voice. Where have you come from? Oh, uh, I'm a traveller, replied Doctor Who airily. I'm a, a visitor to your world, and I must say, I find it a very odd sort of place. <laughs> that metal monster down there, what was that? By the way, I must really thank you for your speed and bravery in rescuing me. <laughs> bravery? said the man. What is that? As to the machine, it is nothing. You are in its way. That proves you are a madman. No one but a madman would stand in the path of a grucker. I can assure you, sir, said Doctor Who stiffly, that I am not mad. I am merely a peaceful visitor to your world. Now that you have so kindly saved my life, I must repay you. What can I do for you in return? Or should I go to your government? You must talk much louder, said the bearded man. We can hardly hear you. Some of us, however, have become expert in lip reading. You say you are a visitor to our world? That alone tells us you are mad. Tell me which haven you have wandered from. We will return you there. But any Korad who is astonished and afraid by the sight of a Grucker must be a very strange Korad indeed. I can assure you, sir, said Doctor Who in a louder voice, you are talking in riddles. I know nothing of this talk of havens and gruckers. To me this seems a very odd world indeed you have here. Uh, where is the soil, the seas, the grass and the trees? Now there was a silence so sudden 
that he himself stopped. All the people who surrounded him leapt away from him as though in terror, but he noted that they displayed no weapons, and that what he had first taken for terror in their faces might more easily be thought of as worship. As they stood off from him, he chanced a glance round the place. It was like the interior of a large metal box. Ladders ran up one side of the wall, and there were holes in the wall here and there. Just like a rookery, he thought to himself. There were quite a few of the folk in the big metal room. They were unclothed except for a harness-like outfit, comprising a broad metallic belt from which hung suspended a great variety of tools. Some homely and recognisable, like screwdrivers and hammers, and some which by no stretch of the imagination could he guess their use. There were men and women amongst them, and some children, and he noted that even the children wore the belt with the tools. Large windows at one side of the hall let in the pale light of the sun. He began to stroll over towards the windows, and as he moved, so the tight ring of people surrounded him. On a sudden impulse, he made to break through the ring and found it useless. They just would not let him through. He turned on them angrily. And what, may I ask, is the meaning of this? He barked at them. A poor thing, I must say, if after rescuing me you treat me like a prisoner. Well, even a prisoner can expect food and drink, I suppose. By this time he was used to speaking in a loud voice, as did all the others, apparently. This was obviously due to the incessant racket and beat of the machinery that filled the air. He supposed that one might eventually get used to this, but it was all very tiring. Then the bearded one came forward and took him by the arm. We are forgetting our humanity, he said in a loud voice. Come, there is food and drink here, and we will give you sleeping quarters, but first... We have sent word to Haven One, and presently the Wise Ones will come and speak to you. We are nothing but provincials, and much of what you talk means nothing to us. You spoke of soil and sea, grass and trees. Now just where did you hear of such things? Doctor Who sat down at the table, on which dishes were placed. He tasted the food, a pleasant enough mushy green porridge, and drank of the clear water in the beaker of glistening metal. With his mouth half full, he waved a hand to the table. Why, he said, this, this food comes from the soil, doesn't it? This water came originally from the sea, didn't it? The bearded man looked strangely at Doctor Who and took a step backward. You can only be one of the wise ones, he said. Though which haven you come from I cannot tell, nor why you wear such outlandish garments. The food you are eating was made for us by a machine. The water you have drunk was synthesized from its chemical elements. There is no soil or sea on Korad, nor is there grass or trees. In fact, I doubt whether nine-tenths of we Korads have ever heard of such things. It is only the few of us who have visited other havens who have heard talk of such things, and then only as legends. Doctor Who looked at him shrewdly. A suspicion which had first come to him when he had stepped out of the TARDIS now came back to him. The metal plane, the metal mountain, the vast walking mechanism, the smell of oil, the all-pervading racket of machinery. It could have only one meaning. 
This planet, Korad, the old man had said, was nothing but a gigantic workshop. But that nonsense about the soil and the sea, the grass and the trees, that was too stupid even to consider. He had blundered into a group of witless slaves of a very highly developed mechanical civilization. He must meet their head people. This might well be a planet on which, by their very advanced technology, he might be able to perform certain very essential repairs to the TARDIS, so badly damaged by her long and distant voyagings. He decided that he must attempt to humour these ignorant savages. He gave an engaging smile. I uh, will indeed welcome a meeting with these wise ones of yours, he observed pleasantly. Uh, will they come here, or must I go to them? They will come here, was the reply. My name is Draco, and I am the leader of this haven. It was I who detected your presence and sent the rescue. To us it seemed as though you had blundered into the path of the Grucker when you emerged from your strange little box. But uh, how did you rescue me? protested Doctor Who. I felt a rope or a tentacle whip round my waist. We used a handling tentacle, of course, was the puzzled reply. Have you nothing like this in your haven? Of course, when I saw you in the Grucker's path, I had to send a Sora to pick you up. I could as easily have lifted a ten-ton iron bar of metal. There was a puzzled frown on his face as he studied Doctor Who's bafflement. Just where have you come from? It is time we knew before the wise ones arrive. I have come from... Doctor Who stopped. What should he say? What could he say? His far distant and endless wanderings had taken him into so many strange places in the universe that his origins had almost been forgotten. Draco's face was watching his closely, and for a moment Doctor Who thought he detected a sudden flash of cunning in the eyes. That strange box you walked out of, Draco pressed on, and Doctor Who could see that many of the others, all men this time, were pressing round to hear. That tiny thing down there, beside the synthesizing machine. Is that your ship? There is no Sora on Korad, anything like that. He stopped, and there was utter silence around Doctor Who. A silence only around him, of course, and he was interested to note that by now he was almost not noticing the ever-present noise. He preened himself and replaced the monocle in his eye. At last... He had all their full attention, and he would tell them something. That is my TARDIS, he said primly. Many, many years ago, I suppose you could say many millions of years ago, she was built by a race of men so advanced and so great-minded that she was designed to travel anywhere in the space of the universe and backwards and forwards across the great span of time, time past and future time. In my TARDIS, I came to your planet. Then he stopped, appalled by what he was saying. These people were ignorant savages, it is true. Yet they were mechanics. They knew machinery and technology must be in their blood. He must say no more. 
they must never learn the secrets of the TARDIS. To no one in all his wanderings had he ever revealed or betrayed any of the wonders of which the little ship was capable. But, he finished firmly, I am tired. I will sleep now. We will discuss this later. From the tight ring of faces, which now seemed a little more sinister even than before, there came no reply. His heart suddenly misgave him. He had, after all, in his vainglorious folly, said too much. They had guessed the powers of his ship. They would use it to travel to other worlds and other times, and thus upset the workings of destiny. Or they would tear her apart, seeking the secrets she held. And he would be marooned here forever, on this inhospitable metal ball, the victim of malevolent machines, millions of miles from his home and millions of years from his epoch. Feebly he put out his hands to hold them off, but they were too many. They overwhelmed him very quickly. They handled him gently enough, and it was evident that they considered him no ordinary prisoner. He was hustled up one of the ladders and thrust inside one of the holes in the metal wall. It was evidently a sleeping place, and they laid him down on a pallet. Draco followed them and looked down at Doctor Who. Here you will be safe until the wise ones come, he said. There will be much to discuss between us, and they will know best what is to be done with you. Doctor Who started to speak, then closed his lips. He stared angrily up at the bearded man. He'd already said too much. Now he must bide his time and wait until an opportunity arose which would help him to escape and regain the TARDIS. For by now he realised that this planet was no fit resting place for him, and the great door of the TARDIS was open as he had left it. These people knew where she lay. They had evidently seen it on some sort of sight screen. He could only hope that the superstitious fear he had sensed in their manner would stop them from touching the vehicle. Darkness fell in the big hall and light sprang up. His guards, two husky young Korads, made no attempt to hinder him as he peered out at the scene below. There seemed to be a continuous coming and going of these strange people. Gangs of them departed through small doors while others climbed up into their sleeping rooms. At intervals of several hours, this sort of thing went on, and he realised that his first guess had been correct. These folks were mechanics, workers in some mysterious workshop, coming and going from their shifts of work. His guards, too, shared shifts, and he was bitterly disappointed when, after seeing one of them yawn in a quite human fashion, shortly afterwards they were relieved by two new ones. Peevishly, he threw himself down on the pallet and forced himself to sleep. If he was to face new and unknown perils, he must have all his strength. When he woke, he sat up to face Draco, who was squatting beside the pallet. "'We must talk,' said the man urgently, and his voice was not as loud as before, for in the sleeping hole the noise did not penetrate so much. "'Before they come, we must decide what to do about you and your strange box. You must tell me all about it, its powers and what it does. There is one amongst us who was watching the metal synthesizer and saw your box suddenly appear. 
We do not believe in magic on Korat, so you must tell us. Ah, you would never understand, replied Doctor Who coldly. There are principles in its construction that you would never understand in a thousand years. We will wait until your wise ones come. You people seem to me to be nothing but ignorant savages, mechanics though you do appear to be. Your masters will know what I'm talking about. Draco did not appear to be insulted by his cold words. Indeed, his bearded face broke into a smile, the first Doctor Who had seen there. The wise ones, Draco said, are not our masters. There are no masters on Korad but the machines themselves. We both serve them and live by their benevolence. Doctor Who was astonished. The machines are your masters? he repeated. That cannot be possible, you know. Machines are merely mechanical things made by the brains and hands of men. You talk nonsense. Draco looked at him strangely. You do not know our world. That proves what you told us, that you came from... from... elsewhere. The machines of Korad are the true masters of this world, stranger. All of us people, we the mechanics and the wise ones also, serve them and live only because they have use for us. Doctor Who stared at him, impressed by his tone of voice. If this is true, he said thoughtfully, why have you never revolted? I find it quite incredible to believe that a race of men, thinking human beings, can remain in subjection to mere unthinking metal mechanisms. How long has such a state of things been going on, hmm? Draco shrugged his shoulders. No man knows. It goes back far beyond our earliest legends. It has always been so. There are dim tales of revolts in the far distant past, all ended as soon as they started. But I've been thinking of them last night. Now that you have come, a new and a wild thought comes to me. With your machine, we might perhaps escape from Korad. There were words you used, only a few of which I recognized. You spoke of places far distant, and of times before this and after this. I am confused. I cannot grasp the thing. Will you tell me? The question was asked so simply and straightforwardly that Doctor Who pursed his lips and gazed intently into the other man's eyes. There had seemed to be cunning there before. Now there seemed to be a pleading. Could he trust this man? Could he tell him some, at least, of the secrets of the TARDIS? Draco spoke before he could reply. I will tell you all we know. For as long as the very oldest amongst us can recall, Things have been like this. We are born into this life, and for most, it is enough. The great machines were built so very long ago that no man knows the purposes of most of them. There are some which synthesize our food and our water and the tools we must use. Of the others, we know nothing. 
These are wise ones, put in Doctor Who. How do they fit in, hmm? Draco's lip curled. The wise ones, he mused. They claim to know the purposes of the machines, our masters. But I have long thought that their life is much like ours, save that they have more of the luxuries the machines make for them. They lord it over us. They have weapons which we are not permitted to have. There are legends of wars between them and our people long ago, but of that we know little. I have a plan. Before they come, you must show us what your box will do. I've had a vague dream during the night. If your machine is so marvelous, why should we not, at least some of us, travel to these far distant places to escape from here, or else... But the thing escapes me. It is that of which you spoke about traveling in time, backwards and forwards. Cannot, uh... Yes, 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 said Doctor Who impatiently. This was no time to tell this ignorant savage that his vague dreams were true. A sudden new idea came into his mind. From what Draco had told him, he knew that at some time in the incredibly remote past, men had built these vast machine creations. The centuries and the millions of years had caused the machines to grow into the stature of gods, while their human creators had degenerated into mere slaves of the all-powerful machines. Suppose, just suppose, these creatures could be transported backwards in time to a point before the machines had been allowed to dominate the planet. With their foreknowledge, they might then destroy what machines there were already. Innocent, useful machines then, before the mysterious thing had happened to them to make them dominant and malevolent. The TARDIS would hold quite a few of these creatures, he thought. There was the fact that the damage to the vehicle had made it impossible for him to plot a true course through time and the dimensions. There might come a moment when a chance might have to be taken. Well, all his life and all his wanderings had been the taking of chances. And suddenly he felt a fellow feeling to these poor semi-humans, slaves of these monstrosities, even spending their lives building more of them right now. He must do something to help them. Something. What should he do? Take me to my ship, he said loudly. And Draco smiled. It is in a safe place, replied the man. We have removed it from the side of the giant synthesizer. It is ready for you. We will go now. You moved my ship? Doctor Who said, horror-stricken. You, you may have damaged it forever. You know nothing about it, you great fool. It is safe, snapped Draco. We are not fools or simple savages as you appear to think. Come. We will go to where it lies now. Oh, no, you will not, my friend, came a new voice. And a face appeared behind that of Draco. Doctor Who looked at the face in surprise. It was a dark face, darker than those of his captors. It was a cruel, proud and haughty face. A metal helmet was on the head, and the rest of the body was clothed in loose metal mesh clothing. 
Draco sprang to his feet and then bowed cringingly. You are Draco, said the newcomer superciliously, head man of this haven, I believe. I am Beran of the Wise Ones of Haven One. We have come at your request. Is this the wizard? And where might his strange machine be? There was a thing in the newcomer's hand that seemed to Doctor Who to be very like a weapon, though what its powers might be he could, of course, have no clue. He rose stiffly and, screwing his monocle into his eye, surveyed the man. You of the three eyes, laughed Beron. You are an odd fellow now. Those ridiculous garments, that glass in your eye. Where is your magic? We no longer believe in such nonsense here in Korad. Now, I've been told many strange and incredible things about this machine, this box of yours. I will examine it thoroughly and learn any trifling secrets it may hold before we destroy it. Destroy it? shouted Doctor Who. Over my dead body, you will! He broke out in a cold sweat. This arrogant creature with behind him heaven knows what powers was a very different kettle of fish from the subservient, humble Draco, still crouched in a menial attitude before Beran. Even that, if you insist, laughed Beran cruelly. Destroy it we must. The Mechanistrians permit no machines not fabricated on their world to exist. That is Prime Law One. Anything we may learn from it, we will, and then it must be reduced to its atoms. For a moment, there was a deadly silence in the small metal cubicle. Doctor Who stood, scarcely breathing, watching the strange thing in Beran's hand, a smooth metal thing which seemed to radiate pure evil. Draco's eyes were on the face of the newcomer, and the humble subservience was fading from those eyes. Doctor Who felt he must try and gain time. Some great event, something which might change the course of history on this incredible planet, was taking shape. I have had a thought, he said to Beran. It is that, together, we might overthrow these machine slave masters of yours. My machine can help you there. Beran frowned blackly at him. It is worse than even I had heard, he ground out. Overthrow the machines? Now, stranger, it is obvious that you yourself, as well as your infernal machine, must be reduced to atoms. You have no doubt been listening to this witless fool here, this savage with a savage's legends. He no doubt calls his world Korad, but that age has long passed. We call our world Mechanistria. The machines you speak so airily of are ourselves, fools. Into each of them was built a human brain. It is the greatest privilege of a living Mechanistrian to be chosen for his brain to be built into a new creation of metal. We thus achieve immortality. And we at once acquire all the knowledge of all the machines in Mechanistria. These savages call us the Wise Ones. The words are well chosen. 
There will come a time when this world of Mechanistria will conquer the whole universe. The power of our human brains, extended a millionfold by the strange and powerful knowledge we are acquiring of the physical universe, will make us lords of the universe. We live on this globe, surrounded by the mighty brains of our illustrious ancestors, living forever at the hearts of the wonderful mechanisms they made for themselves. He ended arrogantly, and Doctor Who drew in his breath. This was truly a staggerer, and all this could not be properly taken in at once. He dully watched Baron walk carelessly to the head of the ladder leading down. They saw, over his shoulder, down into the Great Hall. A mob of the Korads was penned into one corner by a file of the metal-clad Mechanistrians. A voice came to Doctor Who's ears. It was the voice of Draco, now no longer humble and diffident. Now it was strong and vibrant. He turned round wonderingly. Draco held the strange weapon in his own hand now and was pressing it against the neck of Beran. The Mechanistrian, from long ages of carelessness with the Korad slaves, had dropped his guard, and Draco had moved swiftly. Down, he snapped harshly. We go outside the hall. One move, or one word from you, wise one, Beran. And it will be you who is resolved into atoms. Move now, quickly. Like one in a dream, Doctor Who went down the ladder, as did the scowling Beran, with Draco a close third. At the foot, Draco held the weapon against Beran's back. Tell them we are going to examine the ship, he hissed. Beran stared at him superciliously, and with a look that should have shriveled him, but he shouted out an order to the other Mechanistrians, and none came forward. What about me? asked Doctor Who indignantly as they shuffled towards the small door leading to the outside. I need you, friend, said Draco. You and your box. Get in. The Sora was a shallow boat-like affair, scarcely more than a platform, and it barely held the three of them. Draco pressed some buttons, and it rose at once into the air and headed out across the metal plane towards the distance where stood what could only be that vast metal mountain which had been Doctor Who's first sight of this odd world. Draco looked coldly at Bera. I cannot kill a fellow man, he said. You will leap from the Sora now. Leap, or I kill you if I must. Poor fool, laughed Beran, and he stood up. You really must try and harden yourselves. You should really kill me, you know. With a loud laugh, he leapt from the Sora and plummeted down. Doctor Who shuddered as he watched, but then as he saw the TARDIS down there, he forgot everything else. The ship was lodged in a fold in the shimmering metal plane, and the door still stood open. 
We moved it carefully, explained Draco, wiping the sweat from his face. The thing has come quicker than I had thought. I must go alone. Strange man from elsewhere, you must take me in your box to the far distant past of my world. I must go alone, where I had hoped to have support and companionship. I will land the Sora close to your ship. Now it was Doctor Who's turn to be threatened by the strange weapon. Draco pressed it into his back as they moved forward across the metal surface. In Doctor Who's mind was a maelstrom of fears and emotions. This man he was admitting to the TARDIS might overpower him once he had mastered only enough of her secrets to control her. He might then kill her owner and thus make himself master of all time and space. Doctor Who sweated. What, after all, did he know of this curious creature? Slave and mechanic of the monstrous half-human machines of this weird planet, could he trust him? But then a new thought struck him. The fellow had said he would go to the far distant past of his world and attempt to stop the spread of mechanization in Korad, of which he alone would know the end in the monstrous reality of present-day Mechanistria. That such a thought, completely unknown before in his world, should even have come into Draco's mind, seemed to prove to Doctor Who that he could be trusted. Anyway, the Doctor thought wryly, he did have the weapon, didn't he? And therefore, he must be trusted. They stumbled over the smooth plain towards the open door of the TARDIS. Doctor Who stepped inside, and Draco, still holding the weapon, hesitated. The glittering interior, so vast compared with the smallness of the box, obviously frightened him. There's nothing uh, to fear, said Doctor Who with a smile. It is only machinery, you know. He went to the central control panels, and his hands ran over the familiar controls. He watched the great doors as they began to swing shut. His hands faltered as he saw what was coming towards them across the metal plane. A great horde of mechanical monsters, some on wheels and some on legs and some on both, was attacking them. The Mechanistrians had brought all their forces into operation against them. Doctor Who's mind almost reeled as he saw the monstrous and fantastic shapes which had been wrought by these masters of technology, those eerie beings powered each by an incredible and ancient human brain, and spread all over this planet in those mountains of metal, working, working, working all for their own inscrutable purposes. How little he knew of this world on which he had spent so little time. Don't fear those things, said Draco. They are not Mechanistrian brains. They are mere mechanical handling devices. Close the door. The nearest was only a hundred feet away when the great doors closed. And the doctor's fingers flickered over the controls. I uh, cannot be sure where or when I will land, he muttered to Draco. 
There is some damage in the time-space locator, but I will do my best. One thing I can promise you, Draco. We will certainly land on Korad. We will move. Not in space, but in time alone. I've set the controls to pass time. But who knows when we shall land? It is enough, Draco said, and he laid down the weapon. How long will the journey take? How long? The doctor repeated, puzzled. Then he smiled. Oh, oh I see what you mean. Well, really no time at all, you know. When one is moving in time, no time at all is consumed in the journey. Can you understand that? Hmm? No, laughed Draco. By no stretch of my imagination can I understand that. Uh, I was afraid of that, sighed the doctor. Well, I will open the doors now. By my calculations and allowing for the damage to the locator, we should have gone backwards ten million years. One can only trust it has been enough. Draco made no reply, only stared intently at the opening doors. He had scarcely moved a muscle since he'd ventured into this strange, and to him, very fantastic ship. Now he picked up the weapon and attached it to the belt of tools he wore. This I may need, he said grimly. I'm going out into my world when it was very young. I'm going to save it from a future that only now at such a staggering distance in time, I can at last recognize as horrible and inhuman. You have my thanks, strange man from out of the universe. I will not betray your trust. If Korat can be saved from growing up as Mechanistria, I will do it. He stepped through the open doors onto green grass. He stared wonderingly at the strange green stuff under his feet and, kneeling, felt it with his hands. Standing, he faced the landscape and the sky. The sky was blue and there were clouds there. Clouds which no Korad had ever seen on a planet where there was no water save that which existed far beneath the metal surface. He turned and flung out both hands towards Doctor Who still standing by the circular control panels. This is my Korad, stranger, he shouted. She is but newly born and lies ready to my hand to shape into whatever form I desire. I will not need this weapon. I will not take such a thing into this new world. Go back where you came from, strange man, with three eyes. <laughs> you have this day saved a world. The great doors closed and the doctor sighed. The greyness between the dimensions grew in the sight screens as the TARDIS slid ghost-like through the dimensions. Had he done right? Was it possible that mere men could outwit the fate that ruled all things? If Draco was to succeed, where then would be the Mechanistra he had seen and experienced himself? Could Draco succeed against the mighty forces of destiny that shaped the universe? Doctor Who locked the controls 
and the TARDIS stayed still in the nothingness outside space-time. He would rest and eat before again he took up his endless wanderings. He glanced round for the weapon he'd seen Draco toss back into the ship. It was nowhere to be seen. He laughed grimly to himself. There was his answer. Destiny was not to be thwarted. Then he touched his lips, and the smile grew less grim. The weapon, a part of the culture of far distant Mechanistria, still to be formed if it was to be formed, had been snatched out of existence. That might mean only one thing, that Draco had or would succeed, and that Mechanistria, with all its inhuman horrors, would never arise. As he settled himself for sleep, a last drowsy smile crept over his lips. Sometimes the frightening paradoxes were not as frightening as one had first thought.